Good to see all of you. Glad you are all here this morning. Grateful for all those watching online. Welcome. We continue to work through the seven letters that were sent by our Lord to His churches in Asia Minor. We looked at Ephesus last week, and now as we continue a revelation to the seven churches, we're going to look at the church in Smyrna. Grab your Bible, turn to the book of Revelation chapter 2. Turn to the last book of the Bible, right? Revelation, the second chapter, and we want to read verses 8 through 11 as we begin this morning. Revelation 2, beginning in verse 8. And to the angel of the church in Smyrna write the words of the first and the last who died and came to life. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich and the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested, and for ten days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. Lord God, as we focus on the words of Jesus spoken to the church in Smyrna all those centuries ago, we pray that you would take this word and apply it to our hearts and to our church today. We pray through Christ our Lord. Amen. This is the shortest letter of the seven, really nothing more than a postcard, as it were. It's actually less than half as long as the longest letter, which is to Thyatira. There's no rebuke from our Lord to the church in Smyrna. That's the only other church that happens to is Philadelphia. No rebuke. But there's good news and there's bad news. The good news is no rebuke. You're doing a good job. Keep it up. The bad news, things are about to get bad. Really bad. As you read Revelation 2, verses 8 through 11, what is interesting is it actually confronts our very Western American notion about what we think God's will is for our lives Jesus has a plan for my life. Sure he does. Sure he does. Ten days of tribulation. You buying in for that? You all in for that, Christian? Ten days of tribulation. But, fear not. Don't be afraid. I know. I see. I understand. And I stand in your midst. I am with you. That's Jesus' plan for your life, that although you have to go through the tribulation, He's right there with you. To the angel, again, we talked about that last week, can also be translated messenger, human messenger. 
to the angel of the church in Smyrna. What do we know about Smyrna? What kind of place was it? The city was actually destroyed in 600 B.C., so 600 years before Jesus ever walked the planet, it died, but then it came back to life. Did you notice how Jesus identifies himself as the one who died and came to life? The residents of Smyrna would be able to identify with that. It had been rebuilt after it had been destroyed. There's differing accounts about that rebuilding. Some say it was Alexander who rebuilt it in 340 B.C. Others say it was Lysimachus who rebuilt it in 200 B.C. Whatever the case, the city was dead, and now it's alive again. So they would clearly understand that resurrection language. As residents of a city, now they look to the Christ who is dead and now is alive. Well, what else do we know? It was a center for emperor worship, the temple for Tiberius, and one for the goddess Roma. And there were multiple idols throughout the city. And apparently there was a synagogue there, but it wasn't filled with Jewish people who were actually zealous for the one true and only God. This was a synagogue of Satan, as Jesus identifies it. And so Jesus to the church in Smyrna says, the words of the first and the last. Now, where have I read that before? Actually, we can back up to 1 verse 17. When I saw him, when John sees Jesus, the living, resurrected Lord, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. Typical reaction with a close encounter of the divine kind. But he laid his hand on me saying, fear not, I am the first and the last. But even then we can ask, where have I read that before? And you actually have to go back into your Old Testament, back into a section of Scripture, Isaiah chapters 40 through 48, what some call the trial of the gods, where God, Yahweh, the one true and only God, puts all the other gods, all the other idols on trial, and he calls on them and says, can you do what I do? If not, you're not really God like I am God. You may be a God little g, but you're not God capital G. You're not like me, is what Yahweh is saying. And in the heart of this section, in Isaiah 44 and verse 6, thus says Yahweh, the King of Israel and His Redeemer, Yahweh of hosts, I am the first, and I am the last. Besides me, there is no God. No one like Him. No God like Yahweh God. And notice the language He uses to identify Himself. I am the first, and I am the last. If you turn a page or two over to Isaiah 48 and verse 12, Yahweh talking again. Listen to me, O Jacob and Israel, whom I called. I am he, literally I am. He's the ever-existing one. I am. I am the first and I am the last. That phrase, I am the first, I am the last, is a title which is ascribed exclusively to Yahweh. The other gods could not claim that title. All the idols, they are not the first and the last. Only Yahweh is. So what's interesting is Jesus takes the title and ascribes it to himself. 
This would be blasphemy of the highest order unless Jesus is exactly who he claims to be, and that is Yahweh come in the flesh. It's a claim to deity. Jesus is claiming to be God because he is. He is God the Son who came into this world and put on flesh and lived among us for a while. Jesus is God the Son. But notice this also, who died and came to life. Literally, it's who became dead and came to life. Same kind of language that you get in John chapter 1 and verse 14. When John says, the Word became flesh. The one who became flesh is the one who became dead. It's not in the nature of deity to be flesh. And so he became flesh. He experienced that state. He took to himself flesh, a human nature, in other words. And in the same way, he became dead. It is not in the nature of deity to die. But he became dead. He experienced that state by the, through the human nature that he assumed, that he took to himself, he experienced death. He became dead. And so this, he's showing that Christ, he ran the full gamut of humanity. Humans die. And so, God the Son, through the human nature that He took to Himself, died. In His humanity, God the Son died on the cross. He didn't stay dead, did He? And came to life. That's resurrection language. He came back from the dead. He died on the cross, was buried Three days later, he was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father. It is in this short declaration that Jesus, we see at once his deity and his humanity. And how those two natures come together in the one person of Jesus of Nazareth. How Jesus is even claiming to be Yahweh, God. Yahweh who put on flesh. How could Yahweh experience death by becoming flesh and by really dying through his human nature. And now he is the living one. He will never die again. No, he lives forevermore. This is the Lord who speaks to his church in Asia Minor. To the church in Smyrna. And he says, don't miss it, I know I know, because He's the all-seeing one. Nothing escapes Him. He walks among His churches. This points back to 2 and verse 1. The one who walks among the seven golden lampstands, and that backs up to verse 20 of chapter 1. The seven golden lampstands are seven churches. So Jesus is walking in the midst of His church, and that's how He can say, I know. He's not a God who is far off and aloof and really doesn't care anyway. He's right there in the midst of his church. And so he knows the tribulation. He knows their poverty, though they're rich. He knows the slander that they are experiencing. 
Uh, and so, I know your tribulation, that's the suffering. They're under pressure because of persecution. I know your poverty, they are poor, they are destitute. It's going to get worse. When you get to chapter 6, verse 5, the black horse with the rider comes riding in and he's going to bring all kinds of economic calamity with him. Prices of goods are going to skyrocket. And though you are physically poor, you are spiritually rich because every spiritual blessing is yours in Christ Jesus to the glory of the Father. And I also know that you're being slandered by those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. They may be Jews physically, but they're not true Jews according to their actions. They don't have a circumcised heart, though they may be circumcised in the flesh. And indeed, they are a synagogue of Satan. And again, this is, these are the words of Jesus. Jesus, who in his humanity is a Jewish man. And he is saying, no, they are not a synagogue of the Lord. They're a synagogue of Satan. They are, they are demonstrating that they are of the they are of Satan because his name means accuser. It means slanderer. That's what that name, Satan, means. And so they are showing to whom they belong by their slander of these Christians. They are an assembly of the devil, not of the Lord. And then, do not fear. Fear not. Jesus, it's going it's to get worse. Really? Don't fear? Why? How? Ultimately, it's because you know that Although you are about to suffer, you are suffering for the name of Jesus. And that is a good and a glorious thing. You have God on your side. Look, the, the devil, he can only do so much for so long. Ten days to be specific. But you will be, you will experience suffering. And it will come in the form of being thrown into prison. The devil, and you're supposed to connect that with Satan in the previous verse, yes? Satan, the devil, same person, same malevolent spiritual being. The devil is about to throw some of you in prison. Uh, pretty, pretty plain. That's straightforward. This is uh, jail time. They're going to be wrongfully imprisoned for their faith. And again, it's ultimately they're, they're suffering this for the name of Christ. Prison, by the way, is not the punishment. That's just where you wait, sentencing for the punishment, right? So they are going to be thrown into prison. I can't help but think of our, our brothers up in Canada right now. Some of them, pastors, ministers in their respective churches, being thrown in prison at this time. Who's really in back of that? Is it really the jackboot thugs of Trudeau? Or is there something spiritual going on there? Hmm. Here's Jesus saying, you understand, it's, you're, not a, you're not at war against flesh and blood. You're up against these spiritual forces of darkness. The devil is the prime candidate for that, by the way. Thrown in prison. Uh, not only that, you will be tested. And, and this carries the idea of being tempted by sin. Tempted to sin. During the reign of the Caesars, one of the primary temptations was to declare Caesar is Lord and offer the sacrifice at the temple of Caesar 
And Smyrna had one of those temples. Had one of those locations for worshiping the Caesars. Who is Lord? Christians would say Christ is Lord, and that would mean Caesar is not. Some gave in. Historically, we know that's what happened. Some Christians did give in, but not all of them. There were those who refused, and they were put to death. They, gave, they suffered martyrdom because of their refusal in the time of te- uh, testing. Tribulation, this is what we saw back in, in verse 9. I know your tribulation is more on the way. More tribulation. Uh, just that pressure from persecution, suffering, and things like that. And you will, be, you will experience being thrown in prison and being tested in the tribulation for ten days. Don't miss that. Ten days. Probably not a, a literal ten days, right? Week and a half. But rather, this is a, a figure, a metaphor for a complete period of time that is limited. It is a limited amount of time. It is a set period of time. It will come to an end. It has a beginning, it has an end. And guess what? The first and the last knows the beginning and the end of that suffering. That points to the sovereignty of God. That God is sovereign over whatever suffering we experience in this world. He knows when the suffering will begin. He knows how long the suffering will last. He knows when the suffering will end. God is sovereign over that. And so what do we do? Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. That's why I've entitled this sermon, A Matter of Death and Life. You don't have to fear. All you have to do is be faithful. Be faithful to the Lord, even though it may cost you your life. Listen, you are living in a city, Smyrna. You Christians there in Smyrna, you are living in a city that died and came back to life. I'll do you one better. I, who am speaking to you, I'm the Christ, the Lord, who died and came to life. And therefore, as the risen living Christ, he is saying to his church, you will face death, but this is the one also who says over in John chapter 11, verses 25 and 26, He says, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes, literally the one believing in me, it's a a present tense thing. You got to keep believing. You got to keep trusting in Jesus. The one believing in me, though he or she die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. You may die physically but you will not die spiritually. Indeed, you will have eternal life. And here's the question from our Lord that comes ringing down through the pathway of years right on down to where you are sitting right now. Do you believe this? That's the question from Jesus, not from me. It's from the Lord. Do you believe this? Christians in Smyrna, as we come back to Revelation 2, do you believe this? If you do, if you are the one who keeps on believing in Him, if you are faithful even unto death, He says, I will give you the crown of life. Life here is eternal life, 
And the crown that's in view here, they actually had a couple different few words for crown in the original language. This one here was the crown that they would give to the winner of uh, perhaps a race. It would be a, a crown that was usually made up of leaves. And so here's Jesus and he's saying, ha, I promise you a crown, not of leaves, but of life. A crown of eternal life. If you are faithful, even unto death. What about our faithfulness, brothers and sisters? It was about to become real inconvenient to be a Christian in Smyrna. Are we faithful only when it's convenient for, for us? Are we faithful only when the weather is fair? We live in America, land of the free, home of the brave. But sometimes that freedom can bring with it lax commitments. It can bring with it complacency that grows in our commitments to the Lord. I think of the text over in Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 4. The writer in to the Hebrews, he says, In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood. I don't know about you, but I haven't resisted sin to the point of shedding blood yet. I think about our brothers and our sisters elsewhere in the world who do struggle against sin to the point that they shed blood and even give their lives. That happens even today, the world over. We don't know that kind of persecution. We don't know that kind of opposition and oppression. Well, we, we may know it soon in the future. You may be right. Are you ready? Are you prepared to be faithful even when it is not only inconvenient but deadly to be a Christian for the Lord? Now, these are the times when we need to make those determinations. Peacetime, as it were, relatively speaking. Before the opposition comes, before the struggle, before the heat gets cranked up, before the beginning of the ten days, now's the time to make the commitment to be faithful to the Lord even unto death. Will we remain faithful? Listen, He'll remain faithful. I know that. 2 Timothy 2, verse 13. Our God will remain faithful. Will we? Will we? He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Listen up. Here's Jesus, the resurrected Lord. Here's the Spirit of holiness. And together, the Son and the Spirit are communicating a word to the churches. Listen up. For the one who conquers, your translation may say overcomes. That's good too. The one who conquers, he will not be hurt by the second death. What do we mean second death here? What do you mean, Jesus? Second death. It's true. There are some who interpret second death here to mean uh, spiritual death. Uh, that is, you, you won't be hurt by spiritual death, which can be identified as a first death. And so then physical death kind of becomes a second death. However, that's not the way that phrase is used in the book of Revelation. If you turn to the end of the book, chapter 20, and notice in verses 14 and 15, we get an identification of what the second death is. 
Revelation 20, verse 14. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And anyone, and if anyone's name is not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Here is the identification of the second death. It is the lake of fire. The, the, the picture, the portrait of the suffering that is to be endured in the lake of fire is very graphic. Throughout the book of Revelation, you get depictions of it where it is eternal torment, day and night, it never ends. The, the suffering, the pain, all of it goes on forever and ever. And so here's Jesus saying, listen, if you overcome, if you are a conqueror, you are faithful even unto death, second death can't lay a finger on you. You don't have to worry about that. No fear of the second death. You will not be hurt by it. I asked it last week concerning the church in Ephesus. I'll ask it again this week. What about, did they listen, right? Did the church in Smyrna listen? And historically, we can actually point back to first and second century writers. Some of them even uh, contemporary to the scene when John wrote Revelation. Who, who talk about the Christians in Smyrna. Polycarp, he was a disciple of John, a first century apologist. He was actually a bishop of Smyrna. He suffers martyrdom. He is faithful unto death for his commitment to Christ. And that's just a few years after Jesus spoke these words to the church in Smyrna. He's actually famous for his uh, last words. Famous last words, right? As he was being burned, he said, For 86 years I have served him, and not once has he hurt me. How then am I able to blaspheme my king who has saved me? Tempt me not with heaven, right? That was Polycarp. Also Ignatius, he's another bishop in the second century, early second century. On his way to martyrdom, he actually wrote an epistle to Smyrna and also to Polycarp. A couple of epistles. Couldn't have been more than just a few decades after the revelation was written. And that's when Ignatius wrote in part, Ignatius, who is also called Theophorus, to the church of God the Father and of the beloved Jesus Christ, who has through mercy obtained every kind of gift which is filled with faith and love and is deficient in no gift, most worthy of God and adorned with holiness. That's how Ignatius started his epistle to the Smyrnans. He goes on, I glorify God, even Jesus Christ, who has given you such wisdom. For I have observed that you are perfected in an immovable faith, as if you were nailed to the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, both in the flesh and in the spirit, and are established in love through the blood of Christ. Based on what these guys were saying and what they wrote, it sounds like, it sounds like Smyrna listened to the Lord. And they were fearlessly faithful in the face of this ferocious persecution that was coming. And that's the same call for us today. Fearless faithfulness in the face of ferocious persecution. When facing that, will you trust in two things? The wisdom of God and the faithfulness of God. The wisdom of God. Our God is wise. He is the only wise God. 
as Paul says in Romans 16 and verse 27. And we cannot always see and understand how and why God permits or allows certain things to take place in this world, even things that happen to His people. Can't always understand that. Can't always see why and how. In addition, we cannot understand how it is according to His will that Christians suffer. And yet, in His infinite wisdom, our God brings even His people to and through whatsoever comes to pass. Are we going to trust in the wisdom of God? And then will we trust in the faithfulness of God? Ten days, no more, no less. Ten days, however interpreted. I prefer a figurative, metaphorical interpretation of that. But it's a specific set period of time that our God will permit this to happen. When God's people go through the furnace of persecution, He keeps His eye on the clock and His hand on the thermostat. And so, I think about our particular situation. It's a little different. As we come out of this global pandemic, the pandemic, by the way, that lasts only as long as God decrees, right? Only as long as He ordains. Not a day more, not a day less. Coming out of our own 10 days, as it were, this 10-day global pandemic, that will require us to lean upon the wisdom of God. It will require us to lean upon His faithfulness because the days ahead, they are uncertain. And even after, at the end of these 10 days, what the future holds, we don't really know. But I do know this. We serve the first and the last. We we serve the Lord who became dead and came to life. We serve the God of resurrection. And so, my brothers and sisters, the call of Jesus is still valid. Be faithful unto death. Whatever that looks like, I'll give you the crown of life. Let's commit this to prayer. To the first and the last, to the Lord who became dead and came to life. As we consider our lives in the light of eternity, we pray that we would be faithful in all things, even unto death. We pray that whatever we face in this world, we would rely upon your wisdom and your faithfulness to face them. Our eyes are on you. Our hope is fixed and anchored in you. We believe. And we continue to believe in our Lord Jesus Christ. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.